Welcome to Cube Pushers, a podcast all about designer board and card games with a little bit of attitude. Here are your hosts, Bill Corey and Chris Dunbar. Welcome to Cube Pushers, the designer board and card game podcast with a little attitude. This is episode number two, recorded on August 20th, 2012. I'm Bill Corey. And I'm Chris Dunbar. Welcome to the show, folks. If you've never listened to us before, we are a podcast all about designer board and card games. And if you don't know what that means, go back and listen to episode zero in the same feed, and we'll give you a quick overview of that. So without further ado, let's start talking about the stuff we've been playing lately. Chris and I, it's been a couple weeks since we've done an episode. Lots of life getting in the way of things, and not to mention Gen Con, which unfortunately neither Chris nor I were able to go to. It sucks, huh? It does suck. Yeah, but we had lots of chances to play games privately, so we're going to haul butt and hit on the real highlights that we played over the span of the last couple weeks. And let's start with a game that was released last Friday, Trajan, made by Amonich Spila in 2000. 2012. It was released on Friday, according to their press release from last week. I don't know if they actually released at Gen Con or if that was just when the distributors were putting the game on the shelves of uh, game stores. I don't know which way that went. Again, not going to Gen Con hurts. Anywho, yeah, Trajan, we played it a couple weeks ago when I was up by Chris. If you had to describe it in a Twitter post, what would you do? <laughs> I would find something better to talk about on Twitter. No, I would uh, I would describe it as a uh... It's, well, it's ancient Rome is the theme, which I didn't feel like I was doing any of that uh, as I was Wait, playing. There's but... a theme on that game? Are you serious? Yeah, right, exactly. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, you're, you're, there's six different actions you can do. The the action selection mechanic is a little wonky. It takes a little bit to wrap your head around. Yeah. And um, it's victory point salad, as some people refer to it. You're always scoring victory points throughout the game, at least if you're playing well, I think. And um, there's a lot of during game scoring and a lot of end game scoring. And at the end, whoever has the most victory points wins. Imagine that. Yeah, shockingly enough. It's got this Mancala thing where you pick up a bunch of pieces and then drop them off in the corresponding places around your little rondelle. And then you make patterns of different color pieces to activate special tiles that you can collect. And there's all kinds of stuff going on. It feels, I mean, it was a lot of fun. Let's let's start out with that. I think Chris and I both had a great time delving into it, although I don't think I've ever had a game that's made my head feel like it was going to explode quite that hard as that one did. Yeah, I agree. Chris and I were sitting on the, on the same side of the table when we played, and I remember remember at one point in time looking over at Chris and him looking back at me and we both had this holy crap what the hell are we doing kind of look on our faces because it was just there's so much going on in that game it's fun but man is there... yeah it's super fun it, it almost kind of feels like there's a whole bunch of mini games thrown together uh, yes is, is, is a way you would put it and I think that's a way to describe the game for sure yeah it's like no two sections of the game really seem related to each other everything just sort of ties into this one rondelle that you're messing with by dropping the little pieces in it and it's a lot of fun but I'm not sure, you know, I think that this may be one of those games that the cleverness of it is a big thing, but overall, the I, I wonder if that game is going to have lots of legs. Like, if this is going to be a Puerto Rico that people are still playing in 5-10 years, or you know, or something like that, or if this is going to be one of those games that seems amazing and then fades real fast just because it's hard to wrap your brain around. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Being a Stefan Feld game, you know, his games have a crap load of staying power. Oh, yes. Although there's been a couple of his that have been kind of flash in the pan in the year the dragon leaps to mind, although I really like Yeah, that's true. I know there's a lot of people that could care less about that one. Notre Dame was big hotness the year that it came out, and you barely hear anybody talk about that one either. And those are both Feld games, so... Yeah, they are. And, I, you know, I don't know, a, a, you know, I don't see those games being played often and whatnot. It just feels like those games are almost kind of 
classics. You yeah. know, they're not they're not on the same level as Puerto Rico, but they just you know they're always kind of there. Like, oh yeah, in the year of the dragon, that's a good one. And no, oh, Notre Dame, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So that's a, good, that's a good point. Even if they don't hit the table all the time, you always kind of think back on them and go, yep, that didn't suck. All right. I would play that again. I mean, yeah, and I, exactly. I own both of them. They're sitting on my shelf. So since we're talking about Steppenfeld and the Aaliyah Big Box series, I actually was just able to pick up a copy of Castles of Burgundy this last week and play it for the first time. Got a really sweet deal on a guy that really needed to unload some games and was very generous. So I picked that one up. Um, that's a Steppenfeld game also, also in the Aaliyah Big Box line. That's a real interesting one, though. That doesn't feel like any of the other games. In my mind, Steppenfeld games oftentimes feel like doom is approaching and you're just trying to make sure that the doom doesn't swallow you whole. I I don't know. In the Year of the Dragon and Notre Dame both leap to mind for that one. But even Trajan, to some extent, had that kind of feel to it. You know, because time was always elapsing and you were just trying, you know, and there's the whole negative points thing for not having the correct whatever goods thingies, you know, so his games right. tend to have this sort of encroaching doom feel. And then you're just trying to counteract it as best as you can. Castles of Burgundy didn't feel like that at all. Actually, it was a, wow. a roll selection game where you roll dice. Each player has a pair of dice and the numbers that you roll on the dice determine which actions, well, not which actions, but which tiles you can take. There's a, basically a tableau of tiles in the center of the board and, you know, on numbers one through six. And so if you rolled a three and a four, you'll be able to take a tile from the three space or a tile from the four space. But in addition, if you want to play those tiles to your board, you have to play it in a spot that matches one of the dice that you rolled. So you have to choose every turn. When I roll these two dice, do I want to use them to take tiles or to place tiles or to do something else funky or whatever? So it's kind of a neat spin. It sort of reminded me a little bit of an extra euro version of Kingsburg, which we talked about in episode one. In that, you know, you, there's many, many different ways to use your dice on any given turn, but it's definitely not Kingsburg either. I mean, it, it doesn't have nearly as much interpersonal conflict. It's much more about playing your own game. And the only, really the only conflict there is is in the center of the table. You know, who's going to get to this tile first on any given turn? It's a good right. one. It's a good have one. You played, uh, have you played his Macau? No, I have not. I, I played I played it once, and that's another one that just made me feel like my head was about ready to explode, but I did not enjoy it nearly as much as, like, Trajan or some of his other titles. So he definitely has mechanics you haven't seen before yep. that really make your brain hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's good. They aren't necessarily thematic. Yeah. <laughs> hardly, yeah. hardly. I can't think of any of his games that just drip with theme, but... Oh, God. Well, you know, the only one that I think I would go with is to me, uh, Notre Dame felt fairly thematic in a way because you had the whole rats encroaching on your place and you had to hire doctors to get rid of them. And meanwhile, you're driving your little carriage around, picking up the tokens and whatever. But, I mean, that's the closest to theme that I can think of for many of his games. The rest of them, although the components may seem theme-like, like in the Year of the Dragon, the components are beautiful. Yeah, for sure. You definitely don't feel like you're doing anything related to building a Japanese empire, you know, like you might. Right. other games, not even close. So, but you know what? I, one of the things that, and I'm going to go a little off topic here. So Chris, feel free to smack me down if you need to, is I actually was just in a discussion with a couple aspiring game designers like myself about how theme and mechanics can work together. And my thought is really simply this. If the game is amazing, the theme is less important. If the game is really good, you can overlook uh, pasted on theme. But if the game is anything short of amazing, that pasted on theme will glare out there and you'll realize, hey, wait a second, what the heck am I doing? And I think that this is maybe something where like Dr. Reiner Knizia 
may have a problem compared to a Stefan Feld, because although Reiner Knizia's games are, you know, generally, well, used to be at least, very, very well thought of, the pasted on theme is so obvious because so many of his games don't have anything really groundbreaking to offer. You know, there's a lot of math and, and maybe clever play, but there's nothing in the box that you're like, wow, that's really amazing. Whereas it seems like Stefan Feld is, you know, reinventing himself every time he comes out with a game. And I kind of dig that. Yeah, I do, too, for sure. So, all right, moving on. This is a big one for me. I was lucky enough to get myself a copy of the second edition of Descent Journeys into the Dark by Fantasy Flight. It was just released uh, this year, and I got a copy of it, got it to the table already, and actually have even started the campaign that comes along in it. For those of you that don't know what Descent is, it is sort of, in my opinion, the quintessential dungeon crawler board game. Think, if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, the same sort of idea, except for in Descent, the guy that's the quote-unquote DM, called the Overlord in this game, is actually playing to win. He's not playing to provide a good story for the players. He's actually playing to crush their skulls like grapes. And for those of us like me that have been role players forever, that's a great release feeling. You know what I mean? Like you get to be the monsters and really try to slaughter the hell out of those pansy good guys. So that's got a really nice spin to it. I I don't want to dwell too much on on mechanics because, you know, that's not what we're here for. But really fast, it uses specialized dice to simulate combat, and that's pretty much all you need to know. You have movement points, you move around, you kill monsters, yay. Descent 1 was was one of those gigantic coffin boxes, and it had a billion dice and 74 expansions, and I owned all of them, okay? I bought every single one of them, except for Sea of Blood. I never bought that one because by that time, my group had gotten sick of the game. But there's a lot. there was a lot in that first edition. And in Descent, second edition, it really seems to me like what they did is they just cut the fat. They boiled the game down to the most basic, what are the fun parts of this game? Well, the fun parts are moving around, killing stuff. Okay, you know, it's not about rolling 74 dice and doing a lot of math and trying to figure out how to spend your nine surges that you rolled. It's about... Roll a couple dice, see if you hit. Great. Did you hit him? Did you kill him? Great. Move on. And I really like that. I think the other game got a little bit unwieldy with all the extra stuff in there, but this one really slims it down, makes it more enjoyable, and boy, is it faster. Chris, have you ever played Descent, either first or second edition? No, I have not. Uh, the The very first gaming hoopla I went to, you were running a big Descent table, and I remember, you know, checking out all your sculpts and all that stuff, but no, I've never actually played. Well, I gotta tell you, When they came out with the Road to Legend expansion for Descent First Edition, they were answering the hue and cry of the players that wanted there to be a campaign version of this game. Because Descent really is the board game that's going to appeal to role players. It is really, I think, where they were aiming for. They were trying to get the D&D people to play a board game. And that's they came up with Descent. So they came out with with a campaign version. And the original version of Descent before the campaign, a single session would be like a four-hour game. I mean, I'm not even playing. One dungeon, literally, just a one-off. That's not even with leveling or any of that other crap that you could do later on. Four-plus hours just to play a single game of it. And although that's fun, holy cow, I don't know if I want to kill monsters for four hours. That's a lot. So when the campaign, uh, when Road to Legend came out, it trimmed it down, and the adventures got smaller, and you were able to play in more bite-sized chunks. But you were still looking at two hours per game. This one, we played, I don't know, I got a group together and we played for like six hours and we got through five encounters. I mean, we wow. through a bunch in a big, and that was with me teaching the game. None of those guys had played Descent at all. So I was teaching the game and we were just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And we were in and playing and having a great time. And the guys really dug it. 
you know, there is lots of interesting choices. It's not just about kill, kill, kill. There's actual little scenarios where you want to do stuff. It's pretty cool. Now, have you played Castles of Ravenloft or anything of that? No. Uh, like, like the the uh, wizards, you know, attempt at turning D&D into a board game. No, I haven't. And I'm really and I'm actually sort of surprised at myself that I haven't because I have been such a big D&D player for so long. But I don't think I just I don't think I know anybody that owns them. I mean, I just really, they're not around here. I know that they're super popular and a lot of people really dig them. I don't know that I know anybody that even owns a copy for me to play. And I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't care enough to want to buy them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're all right. But if somebody else, I, I just, from what I've heard, it, I can play D&D if I want to play D&D, you know? Right. Yep. The scent is different enough that I feel like there's a different experience in the box and I dig it. Nice. All right. Next up, uh, Manila. Yeah. I got to I got to play that last week. Um, Manila is is kind of a modern classic, I guess. It came out in two thousand five, printed uh, stateside by Rio Grande Games. It's basically a it's a gambling game, is what it is. You're spending money in hopes that you can turn that into more money, and whoever does the best at turning small money into big money uh, at the end of the game wins. It's currently out of print. It's been out of print for several years now actually yeah um but it's uh it's a super great game it, it plays quick it's something you can play with you know friends and family it's it's one of my go-to games when i'm playing with you know brothers or or cousins or whoever who you know they don't want to sit through an hour and a half explanation of such and such euro um, i can bring out manila i can explain it in five minutes and we're off and running so yeah. um that is a super great one you bet. It's got that weird sort of stock mechanic to it also that I don't know. I think that if there's any one thing that I would critique the game slightly for as far as it being super approachable to non-gamers or quasi-gamers, it would be that. That whole collecting the stock certificate. Well, they're not called stock certificates, but the certificates of the different goods and them being worth more at the end of the game. Sometimes right. that can be a little bit of a disconnect because it's that second layer of how to earn money that isn't immediately obvious until you've been playing the game for a while. But other than that, I totally agree yeah well the, the other complaint about it is too for non-gamers or even people that are gamers that have never played the game before is the auction or the bidding for harbor master it's really hard to figure out how to value that so but, but i think you know, new, new players just kind of sit it out the first couple rounds and they'll figure it out after that you know yeah and that's and that's really a problem with any auction-based game where there isn't a clear hey this is how much this is worth mechanic you know, you and I have talked about Goa in the past. That's another one where the auctions are really user user generated and it can be tough to, you know, figure yep. out exactly what this is worth. Whereas there are games, speaking of Dr. Reiner Knizia, that answer that question decently like modern art, which I would consider definitely a modern classic. That game has very clearly delineated this is how much a painting is going to be worth, guys. It's never going to be worth more than this. So if you're bidding more than this, you're wasting money and it's right out there in front of you. Yeah. So I think that that's just one of those things where certain game designers make certain choices based on what they want and don't want to see in their game. And I think that maybe that's one of those unintended consequences that maybe the designers don't exactly think that one all the way through before they publish a design. Yeah. I don't know. I agree. Maybe yep. it's one of those too close to the forest to see the trees kind of deals. <laughs> Are you mixing your metaphors over there? Maybe. I don't know. I got a chance to play a game called Venture Forth. This is a game from Minion Games that was re released this year. Um, talk about themeless. No, I'm kidding. It's, um, the idea behind oh, the game, in a nutshell, I guess if you've ever played the classic game Talisman, you're about halfway home. The idea is that you walk around, you get a character and then you try and go around gathering more characters and getting each of these characters to meet whatever their specific needs and desires are. 
Um, and those can be anything like meeting uh, low-level characters or meeting high-level characters or defeating this type of monster or encountering this type of monster or whatever. It's got some really interesting things going on in there. I think that it's one of those games that's built to be asymmetrical without looking like it's built to be asymmetrical, if you get my drift. Because every single character is unique. No two players are ever going to be chasing the exact same things. So everybody is going to be setting up the board for their own personal goals rather than everybody kind of doing the same thing simultaneously. I really enjoyed that. I will say that the graphic design leaves a lot to be desired. Um, yeah, it's it's horrible. It's ugly as hell. Now, the, the card art itself is actually not too bad. Oh, no, it's not. It's not. It, the, the, the card art's really good, but obviously they hired, like, the redheaded stepchild of the guy <laughs> who did the card art to design the board. Actually, Because, I, oh my god! I got a chance to play the game with one of the original playtesters of the game, and um, he, was, he was talking to me about this, and he mentioned that the board that you actually play the game on is almost exactly the same as the prototype board that the designer came it, to the company with. It is. I, I playtested that game in 2009 at one Did of you? the gaming hoopla, Springer or Fall, mm-hmm. and then I just played it again this summer. Oh my gosh, it didn't change it. They added color, I yeah. guess, instead of, you know, running copies at uh, on their Xerox, uh, you know, in the office that they work at. Mm-hmm. You know, they found a professional printer to do it, but yeah. it's, holy man. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the component quality is fine. Huh. The mechanics are okay, I guess. It is fairly themeless. Um, but yeah, just ugly to look at. But you know what? I don't think it would be as themeless. I really don't. If the graphic design were better, I really don't. I think that the theme could be there because it does make a certain amount of sense instead of, well, and there's a second, there's a second issue that I, that I think comes up, which is the issue of the, um, the generic names for everything. So instead of like I was, when I was talking to Eric about this, when we played it on last Tuesday, I said, I'm really surprised that this game, which is all about Greek mythology and whatever doesn't have any of the names of heroes like this is just poet it's not right homer or whatever i mean i don't know anything about this so who knows but you know it's just the guy is called poet or the guy is called librarian or the guy is called gladiator put some names (laughs) on these guys he's not even the gladiator he's just gladiator just gladiator (laughs) and you don't go to you know mount olympus you go to mountains or you go to wilderness or whatever and it's like man Talk about an easy fix to inject some theme into this game. Name the characters, name the places you're going to, pretty up the board a little bit. And I think this game is a solid one. I think that it's going to suffer from a bad rap for being as ugly as it is. I think that it's just, ugh, it needs, boy, oh boy, I tell you what, Minion Games, if you're listening, reprint with better art, please. I, I honestly think this game is a winner. I think it's got a Euro style to it that will appeal to people that want to like games like Talisman, questing type games but don't like the roll and move garbage that goes on. So I just, boy, I feel like there's a good game in there and it just is suffering because it's not boy. Yeah, I I agree. You know, it's almost like they took the theme, the the names, you know, instead of coming up with creative names, it's almost like they turned it into like a Mad Lib. It's like, oh, fill in the blank with occupation. And then they turned it over to like an accountant uh-huh. To fill out the Mad Lib, it's yeah. like Some... name a place, mountain, name an <laughs> occupation, poet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I don't know. There's, there's, it just needs that one. Like I said, there's a solid game in that box. I had a good time when I was playing it. I really enjoyed the idea that each character has his own 
quote unquote motivation. Don't think that joke didn't get played to the bitter end. What's my motivation as I'm running around the board? We, you know, we... yeah. I, I thought I was kind of I was kind of disappointed that some of them seem easy to acquire and some of them seem really difficult to acquire. I guess as to the asymmetry of the game, but whatever. Well, I think that that also plays into the more experienced players are going to have a better idea how to set up the board to make those ones yeah. that seem harder easier to accomplish. Because I know for a fact that. You know, the guy whose game it was, was setting up these wonderful combos of look at all this stuff I can do on my turn. Whereas I was like, well, geez, I can barely do one if I'm lucky and it might take me two turns to figure it out. Yeah, that's true. That might just be an experience thing. I'm not entirely sure, but it's not a bad game. Let me, you know, I think that it's a solid game. I just think that the graphic design and, you know, even the box it's not ugly, but it's not. It doesn't grip you and say, "Ooh, I really want to play that." You know? Yeah, pull me off the shelf and take me home with you. It does not say. No, not so much. So I, I want it. I like it. I like it, and I really hope that Minion Games decides to give it a little bit better of an art and graphic design treatment and re-release that sucker because I really think that there's a decent game in there that's just going to get buried by that. Yeah, theme. I, yeah I, I don't ever have a need to go back to it again, but I can respect your opinion barely. There you go. Oh, geez, here we go. Speaking of the exact opposite of that, a game where theme is everything, um, I've been trying to get one iPad game in here every week. I'm going to try and throw in one digital version of a board game just because, you know, it's nice to be able to play something on the fly. And I have been playing a lot of Elder Sign. This is the Fantasy Flight co-op dice game that then got re-released for the for the iPad last year. And boy, oh boy, does this game completely drip theme. They did a fantastic job with porting the sucker over. They simplified some of the rules. And everything has cool animations, and the dice are just these glyphs that randomly pop up, and there's good mood music, and when, you know, it's got, if you don't know anything about it, it's a co-op game set in the Lovecraft Cthulhu universe. Uh, Think of it as sort of like Arkham Horror the Dice Game, although less long by a long shot, but... It's it's a good one, and the iPad version is solid. So if you've ever played Elder Sign and wanted a version of it that you could play in a little bit faster of a time, it's a, it's a solid one. Pick that one up. Nice. Excellent. All right. The last one we're going to talk about here, and I know we've got a ton in our session reports this week, but I was able to play Infiltration. This is a new release by Fantasy Flight, uh, released this year. Donald X. Vaccarino, famous for Dominion and a couple other games. Kingdom Builder, which just won Spiel des Jahres. This mm-hmm. year was his design as well. This is one of his newest ones. This is set in the Android universe. So if you're familiar with the board game Android that uh, Fantasy Flight came out with a couple years ago, this is that dystopian future universe kind of deal going on. In a nutshell, Infiltration is a press-your-luck game. Similar, I think it's very similar to the game The Adventurers, the Temple of Chalk or whatever, or even the Pyramid of Horus, I think, was the second one that came out with it. Right. It's basically the same idea, but packed into a half-an-hour, 45-minute card game. You go into this complex and you're trying to get as much treasure as you can and get out before the bad guys shut you down. Or in this case, the good guys, because you are the bad guys trying to steal a bunch of crap from a building before the cops show up. Nice. It's not bad. It's got decent theme to it. There's some really interesting stuff that goes on. My only fear about the game is that I think it's too short. And I think that's a weird criticism to say about a game that's intended to be a shortened version of something else. But it feels like straight out of the box, the way you play it, the game just is over before it barely began. When we played, we played two games in a little under an hour and a half. And the reason we played the second game is because we kind of all sat and looked at each other and said, wait, is that that's it? What happened? It's over? Right. Jeez. Okay. well, I guess we have to play again because that didn't feel like it was 
you know, I don't know. It didn't have quite the bang for its buck that I wanted it to have. I wonder if there is a house rule fix that can maybe drag that out a little bit. I've been reading a little bit on the Board Game Geek forums, and there's a couple variants being thrown around there that might fix it. But it's pretty slick. Well, is it is it a game that is something you want to play, you know, multiple times in a session? Yeah. You know, like, like Dominion's super quick, and, you know, there's a lot of super quick card games out there. You just play a crap load of them back to back. Sure. All right. So let's compare it to Dominion because that's a fair comparison considering they were both made by the same guy. In Dominion, you're playing if you want to play a bunch of games, it's because you want to see different interactions between the different sets of cards, right? You're not going to play the same set of kingdom cards six times just to see who can get right. the optimization figured out. You're going to pull out new ones each and every time. Um, Infiltration has something similar to that in that there are the rooms of the building are randomized from two different tiers. There's a first floor and second floor rooms, and the second floor rooms are theoretically better than the first floor, and da da da. And there's a bunch of both, so you can randomize them, and the building will be different every time you play. That's all well and good, but there's nothing about that randomization that makes the game feel so much different than, say, for instance, Dominion, when, you know, if you're playing a game with the Thief, as an example, which I know is the much maligned attack card that everybody grumps about, you know, you play the game differently than you do if you're playing with Militia. You play, you know, nothing really changes the feel of the game that much in any given play that I detected. So okay. I don't know. I don't think it has the same replayability as Dominion, but like I said, we played it twice. So right. it's not bad. I'm I'm looking forward to getting it played a couple more times just to see whether it's got some staying power. It definitely piqued my interest enough that I bought it sight unseen because I love Press Your Luck games anyway. That's sure. the thing I'm a sucker for. I loved The Adventures when it first came out, and Can't Stop is, I think, one of the all-time classics. So, you know, those sort of games tend to appeal to me anyway, and I love the Android universe. So yeah, was... it's, it's interesting that Fantasy Flight has kind of taken the Android universe and, like, building more and more stuff around it because, I get, you know, it's an interesting universe for sure. I guess it just doesn't seem to me anyway that Android was, like, a big enough hit for, for all these people to be calling for, you know, more Android stuff. Well, you know, I think the thing about Android is that I think Android was very critically well-received, but yeah. consumer well-received. I think that's one of those games that people that enjoy critiquing board games tend to enjoy Android. Not all the time. I mean, not everybody does, obviously, because it definitely had its detractors. But I think that the the Android is all about theme. I mean, if there has ever been a game that the theme is everything, that's the one. It's all flavor text and reading, you know, yep. clever stuff on the cards and whatever. So there was a ton of room for them to build. And I think that there were enough people that enjoyed that theme enough that it was worth moving forward with. Plus, they had the benefit of they picked up the rights to Netrunner. Let's not yeah. forget was a huge, yep. huge hit back in the day, and they needed to plug that somewhere. And if Fantasy, if, if Fantasy Flight is all about anything, it's about taking 47 games and packing them into one IP. Right. Look at the Runebound Descent universe. There's Rune Wars and Runebound and Rune Age and Descent, and there's, what, like six Dungeon Quest. They even stuck Dungeon Quest in that world, for God's sake. Right. You know, so, I mean, there. you know, if there's ever going to be a company that's going to do something like that, it's probably going to be Fantasy Flight. But Good point. Let's take a look at what's in the news. Speaking of Descent and Fantasy Flight and expansions and plugging a whole bunch of stuff into the universe, Lair of the Worm, their first expansion for the second edition Descent coming out this year, huh? Later in 2012. That's what they say, yeah. 
I like it. I like it. New heroes, new classes, new classes. This is big. For those of you that don't know anything about the second edition Descent, when you pick a character, you then get to pick one of two classes that that character can pursue. And that those classes will give you skill cards that you can unlock to customize your character a little bit further. So the idea is that if you want to play a fighter type, you can either be a knight or a barbarian. And then you take one of those two decks cards and that's what you pursue. So if they're introducing new classes, I wonder if that means that there's going to be a third option for each of those four basic archetypes that's going to be in there, which I think is amazing. Or are they going to introduce a fifth archetype? I don't know, but right, cool. I, the idea of more options is always a good idea for that one. Nice. Monsters, new quests, but only 10 plastic figures. That, I think, is interesting because the new heroes have to come up with figures, right? And the new right. monsters have to come with figures. So that leads me to believe that this is not going to be a super big expansion, even though the box, I mean, they're picturing a, a decent-sized box here, you know? And I see, let's see, they've got uh, the hybrid Sentinel and the Fire Imps is what they're teasing on Game Salute News's page for it. So obviously there's two of the there's two of the monsters right there. So I wonder if those are the only two monsters. Right. That's interesting because there are other expansions that they did went for first edition descent always had a bunch of stuff. I mean, we're talking a bunch, like four or five new monsters with 20, 30 sculpts total and lots of new heroes. So maybe they're going to take a more bite-sized approach to expansions as well. Yeah, well, you, that could be if people, you know, got super highly invested in the first edition and now there's the second edition out that has to be converted and whatever, you know, maybe they're just worried that, you know, people are not going to want to invest money if, you know, every expansion is going to be $80 and have, you know, yeah. require another closet to hold it. True. Um, at least I will say one thing for Fantasy Flight, although I know there were a lot of people that were grumping about all the money they had spent on first edition, at least they were released a conversion kit. So that way you can convert all your first edition monsters and heroes to second edition. That made me happy because I was one of those guys. And then I bought the conversion kit right along with second edition, you know, lumped all of my tackle boxes full of monsters right into that new version and away we go. So, yeah, that is pretty slick that they did that. So it's a good thing. I think that they would yeah. earn their market pretty hard had they not. I think that was probably a necessary step that would have been awful ugly if they hadn't. Right, right. So as the guy that plays the Overlord in our games of Descent here, I'm excited. There's going to be some new nastiness, apparently, that the Overlord's going to get to mess with. New quests, new all kinds of stuff. Twelve more map tiles, a secret room tile. I don't know what that's about, but that looks interesting. Oh, another another lieutenant. That's cool. Uh, sort of mini bosses and whatnot. So that's exciting. Yeah. I think I think that's Descent. I think that in a couple years, Descent Second Edition is just going to be Descent. I don't think people are going to even be bothering to call it second edition. I think that first edition is just going to go away and second edition is going to be where it's at. So I'm glad to see they're already building on it. That's good. So what's this overhill and underhill thing, Chris? Yeah. So there's, they're releasing a new expansion for the Lord of the Rings living card game, uh, which is the Hobbit, uh, the, the full title, the Hobbit overhill and underhill. Uh, I think it's, cool that they're doing this because before this release the only hobbit game that was released was this horrible horrible game that came out like in the 90s you could buy it at like barnes and noble yeah it had like a picture of smog on the cover that's about the only thing i've never played it before so i guess i shouldn't critique it all i know is that anyone who's ever played it says that it's horrible hey everybody this is future bill just sticking his nose in here for a second to clarify something that chris was just talking about there have actually been a few games called The Hobbit that have been released over the years. The one that Chris is specifically referring to, I believe, is the 2001 release, 
which is ranked 8,100 on the board game rankings on Board Game Geeks, and that's got a picture of Smog on it, so I'm assuming that's the one he's talking about. There was also a version released in 2010 by Fantasy Flight, and then Iron Crown Enterprises did a version in 1994 that appears to be decently well thought of. So I just wanted to clear that up. There have been actually been a couple other games, even besides those, that have been released in the 70s, um, but I'm assuming he's not talking about those. And then there's a few more titles that are coming out this year that are all themed about The Hobbit, probably uh, playing off of the movie popularity. So anyway, just figured I'd throw that in there so that way you guys don't think that we don't do our research. <laughs> okay. So it's nice to see that, uh, obviously, you know, The Hobbit is a huge property, uh, uh, IP, and that somebody is is doing you know something worthwhile with it. So... Um, yeah, this expansion, it expands, again, like I said, the Lord of the Rings living card game. Um, it's going to, it's called a saga expansion. So it's going to allow you to play um, through different scenarios. It's going to come with three scenarios that you can just play individually as one-offs. Or it sounds like there's going to be an option to run all three of those scenarios together as if you were running a campaign. Uh, they're introducing a new card type, which is a treasure card type. I, I, I wonder if one of those treasures will be the one ring that, that maybe you can find in a cavern somewhere and steal from some sad little golem guy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I, I've, I've never played the Lord of the Rings, the living card game. Um, I want to try it. I know it comes highly recommended by, by certain people. Um, so yeah, have you, you've played that one, Bill. Yeah, I played it once or twice. Um, I'll be 100% honest with you. I was a little underwhelmed with the actual game. I think that the theme is fine, and that's great, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Lord of the Rings games and zombie games are like neck and neck in my book is stuff that they're pounding the snot out of, and I'm getting a little ill of them. I mean, I know that, you know, maybe it's a great game and all, but I don't know. The IP is good, and that's great. And I'm I, The Hobbit is my favorite of all of the books set in that world. You know, I think that The Hobbit is easily the best standalone book if you're just going to read one. So that's, yeah. you know, I think that's fun. And with the movie coming out, you know, eventually, and I, it was a no-brainer that they were going to do it. But yeah, I just was not super, super overwhelmed with the game. I know, you know, like I said, I know a lot of people like it, but eh, I was sort of meh. So, well, maybe this will jazz it up enough to make me like it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Here's, here's to hoping. <laughs> All right, Memoir 44 gets an equipment pack. This is supposed to be the largest set of figures that's ever been released for a Memoir. For those of you that are not familiar, Memoir is one of the card-driven combat games. I think Battle Lore was the fantasy version of it that was released about the same time. Yeah, so they're all based on the Richard Borg battle cry system. Yep. yep, there you go. So 186, this is the exact opposite of that Descent thing I was just talking about, huh? 186 plastic figures, Finnish ski troops, Polish cavalry, French infantry, beach landing equipment, new artilleries. You're going to include snipers, 16 new scenarios. Um, this sounds like, if you're a memoir fan, this sounds like a must-get. I can't even imagine not wanting to pick this one up. However, friendly word of warning, you have to have at least one of the base games and some of the expansions to play most of the scenarios that they include in there. So this is definitely endgame loot. Um, you know, this is not something that if you're just going to get into Memoir 44, you want to buy the base game in this. I have a feeling this is more directed at the folks that already own everything and just want to keep growing. Yeah, they're they're definitely aiming this at the, the hardcore fans, that's for sure. Yeah. And I know that there's a bunch of those guys out there. I've played Memoir a couple times, and I enjoy it. It's okay. I'm not a super big fan of the um, Battlecry system. I'm not going to lie to you. I think that it's okay, but it's going to be super frustrating when you know exactly tactically what you need to do in order to win the battle, and you can't draw a card to save your life that lets you move the guys on your left flank. That can get right. in a big hurry. So that, that can make me slightly crazy. 
but it's it's good for what it is. I definitely would rather play Memoir than Battlelore. That's for darn sure. And I mean, Battlelore is not bad, but it's yeah, it worse. I don't know how else to describe it. Memoir is a stripped down, simplified version, whereas Battlelore, there's just so much going on that it's like, boy, there's all this luck, and I have to remember spells and weird icons and dice and things. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Battlelore is definitely for the fantasy crowd and, and memoirs, you know, for the, the war buffs, that's for sure. Sure, absolutely. So so all you memoir nuts, look forward to that one. The equipment pack's coming soon to a nerd store near you. Yes. All right. The Manhattan Project is getting a mega expansion with our buddy Eric Jomi as one of the co-designers. Woohoo! Way to go, Eric. Yeah. It looks like there's three small expansions in this box, huh? Yeah, it's it's the expansions you can play, throw everything together and play all three expansions in one game, or you can just pick and choose the expansions you like and play with those. There was a Nations expansion uh, earlier in the year. There's uh, So this expansion adds additional Nations. It's called the Nations 2 expansion, I guess. Wow. It also adds, uh, yes, very creative. I think they had the same guy do uh, it's the, the same company and the poet yes it's the same company this is minion games again i'm telling you yeah the uh, the thing with manhattan project though i'm not a huge fan of the game it's fine the graphic design though of it i love the bits and the artwork of manhattan project is amazing yeah. i don't they need to hire that artist to redo venture forth <laughs> Seriously, they've already got the guy on the payroll, or at least they have his email address. Yeah. Say, here you go, make this one look awesome. Yeah, they... yeah, I love the Manhattan Project. The art is, it's cartoon looking, and it's super great. I like it. So, uh, they're, yes, so this expansion, they're adding new nations. Uh, they're adding rocket technology and H-bomb technology. So, okay. I'm not exactly sure what that all will entail, but for all of the Manhattan Project fans out there, this is for you, I guess. Yeah, I've never played, I've never played the game, so I really can't speak much about it um but it looks like that basically what it looks like according to the little description on board game geek is that the design bomb action is getting souped up a little bit so maybe this is a this might be a method to address what may have been viewed as a i don't know if it's maybe an undervalued action or an action that was too simple in its original incarnation but it looks like all the mechanics are sort of getting jazzing that up a little bit so like i said i never played so i'm probably you know talking out my butt here but that's what it looks like based on the description so good for you that's yeah. awesome all right a couple little quick hits here queen games is reprinting dirk hen's version of shogun not to be confused with avalon hills shogun not to be confused with reiner Knizia's shogun not to be confused with the kusa not to be confused with samurai swords because that is the most overused title for a game in the history of board games right but this That's is this very is strange that i think but... everybody likes right I like it. I used to own it. I sold my copy because it never got played, but uh, I think I think it's enjoyable. I, it wasn't real popular in our group. The combat tower is is amazing. You know, okay. I you take you take the the opponents your your cubes and your opponents cubes and you shake them up and you drop them in this tower and if more of your cubes come out of the bottom than your opponents cubes you win the you win the battle. It's just kind of more interesting than throwing dice and adding them all up, I guess. Okay. So I, I do enjoy that mechanic. I think I probably bought it just because of the combat tower. <laughs> I love anything that's Japanese. Gotcha. Um, so uh, I I but I have sold it so. Uh, you know, it's getting reprinted now. Um, I guess I didn't realize it was out of print to begin with. Maybe I didn't get my money's worth when I sold it, but yeah. that's all right. I, you know, I, it'll be interesting. I don't know. Did you, you thought the bits quality was pretty good in the original? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was a gorgeous game. Okay. The map, the map was gorgeous. The bits were great. I always wonder slash worry when companies reprint games that had amazing bits the first time around. 
you know, because are you going to don't screw it up? You know what I mean? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But who knows? Yeah. Did they get the rights to the original art or whatever. So who knows? But yeah. that's so Queen Games coming out with that one. That's cool. Pandemic is going to be at Toys R Us, huh? Yeah, I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, Toys R Us has like the wall of board games. Sure. And uh, Pandemic is going to find a place there. So I thought that's interesting. It's, um, you know, maybe Forbidden Island is already on the shelves there. I don't know. You know, it's the same same designer, uh, Matt Leacock. Uh-huh. Um, it's supposed to be the family version, kind of 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 this of the pandemic mechanic. Um, so you'd think that that would be there on the shelves before Pandemic was. Maybe maybe it's already there. I don't know. But yeah, Pandemic super great. I think it's a fairly accessible co op game. Sure. And uh, I think that it's great that it's going to be found on the Toys R Us shelves. So. Well, I have two quick theories here. Number one, the people at Toys R Us are just as annoyed by game tins as what we gamers are. And they That's didn't want to try point. and figure out how to put a tin on a shelf. And number two... For, you're, you're referring to Forbidden Island tin? Yes, yes. Yeah. Forbidden Island comes in that stupid tin. Panic Station, anybody? You know, I don't know why game designers do that. Stop that. Yes, they're... Warriors. Pretty, well, they fixed that one with Cormageddon, at least. Thank God. But, dear Lord, stop that. But and then my other thought that I keep coming back to on this one is that is it just me or does pandemic seem like a weird theme to throw in Toys R Us? By the way, the world <laughs> is dying of disease. Or you could play the latest Kirby's Adventure game. One of the you know, it's just, right. that just seems like a little bit of a disconnect to me. I wonder how many kids are going to look at this and go, "Ooh, a game about the plague. Let's do that." Yeah. I'm not sure there's too many children making decisions at Toys R Us, but yeah, no, I Have I you agree. ever gone into Toys R Us with your kids? I have, and my kids do not make decisions at Toys R Us. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Boy, most of the time when I see parents being dragged around by their kids, they the parents are definitely not making a whole lot of decisions. They're going, fine, I'll buy you this. Just shut up. Yeah, those parents. Yeah, well, you know, there, there you go. Speaking of reprints, uh, Rio Grande is reprinting Gulo Gulo, huh? Yeah, they are. It's a super, super great kids game. Yeah, it's it's like the must-have kids game if you want to get your kids on, you know, wooden bits designer board games. It's a Wolf, Wolfgang Kramer game. It's not. Uh, there's not a whole lot of tactics or strategy to it, but it's a fun little game. And it's a game that kids can actually kick an adult's butt at because it's a dexterity game. The smaller your fingers are, the better you play the game. So. Gotcha. Dear listener, do you detect a note of maybe personal experience in the whole getting your butt kicked by your kids thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just, a, just a few times. Yeah. I know that. That's all right. I grounded them appropriately. Yeah, there you go. I know I've heard Chris's kids asking to play Gulu Gulu before, so that's that's awesome. Well, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, they aren't going to be asking to play it anytime soon because now that I know that it's out of print, I'm going to get this guy sold before it gets reprinted. Yeah, well, unfortunately, you just said something over a podcast that's being listened to by tens of fans. So, <laughs> right. Just killed your own market right there, buddy. All right. Speaking of iOS apps, I was talking about Elder Sign before. Cutthroat Caverns is coming out for the on the iOS app store, huh? Yeah, that's what I saw. So I used to have the actual physical version of Cutthroat Caverns, and I had all the expansions. It came super highly rated by people whose opinion I respect. It came highly rated as a, you know, not a super thinky game or a super heavy game. But hey, if you like a dungeon crawly kind of adventure party game, get Cutthroat Caverns. So I did. I didn't find it that amazing. It's kind of funny sometimes, I guess. 
Um, but seeing that they have an iOS app coming out, that's uh, that's interesting. It might be enjoyable on, on that kind of uh, medium. I feel like I've played it once or twice before, but I could honestly could can't remember. So I'm just going to quiz you on this one a little bit, Chris. Is this one of those games, and I'm just going out on a limb here, where the interaction between the players is as or more important as the actual game that's sitting on the table between you? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So then that makes me wonder if you take that out of it by putting it on a digital medium, is it going to, is the game going to suffer? You know, because I like, for instance, I can't even imagine wanting to play like Werewolf or the Resistance over a computer. What or would, like Munchkin? Yeah. Right. Why? Yeah. Dear That's God. a good point. That's so, a very good point. So I wonder. Yeah, because a lot of it is, you know, because you can, you can play cards because you're all a party and you're trying to work together, right? But sure. you get victory points by slaying the monsters. And if you can make sure a monster dies on your turn instead of somebody else's turn, either by, you know, playing cards that make your, your teammates trip or whatever the case may be. And that's where, you know, some of the fun comes in. So that's a really good point. This digital version sitting in a darkened room playing by yourself. Yeah, might not be that great. Yeah, you know, I, I had a little bit of a concern. I'm going to go back to Elder Sign here for a second. I had a little bit of a concern about that when I bought Elder Sign because Elder Sign is supposed to be a co-op game, right? So the theory is most of the co-op games, it's the interaction around the table that's just as enjoyable as the actual gameplay itself. And we're going to talk more about that in a couple minutes. Haha, <laughs> teaser. You know, when you play Elder Sign, you're basically just playing it solo and you control multiple characters. And I was worried, okay, is the game going to lose a lot because of that? And the answer is no. Because you're just playing it by yourself, the game plays just fine. You're just playing multiple positions around the same table, and since it is a co-op anyway, it doesn't matter. With Cutthroat Caverns is quasi-co-op, right? It's co-op, but there can only be one winner at the end of the game. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So that makes me wonder, you know, because now hmm, you can't really do that whole playing multiple positions and just having a good time thing. You also have to try and play to quote-unquote win. So I don't know how that's going to work. That'll be interesting to see. You know how we were talking before about certain companies liking to put a million things into one IP? I think the ultimate version of that has officially happened. Star Trek Catan. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Star Trek in the Settlers of Catan universe. You figure it out. I have no idea. Anyway, I think that we have officially reached the point where we have Sheboyganopoly, but the Catan version here. We're going to just put this system in every IP in the world. But... I've um, done a little bit of research into this one, and there are actually a couple mechanics that are significantly different enough from base Catan that maybe this will have some legs. I don't know. Because you're in space or what? No, I mean, I think there's actual things that go on in the game, like you get get a character that gives you some special ability that nobody else around the table has. So, like, I might be Spock, and you might be Kirk, and... Jim might be bones or whatever. And then, you know, you play with whatever that special ability is. So there might be a little bit something different in the box. I think this is just, this just smacks of trying to pander to a different class of fanboys and sell some games to me. But who knows? Yeah. I don't want to pan it before I actually play it. And I hear that there's a couple people at the gaming hoopla that are thinking about running this as an event. So I'm going to be interested to see whether it actually gets some playtime and whether people care or not. Yeah. I'm setting my phasers to lame on this one. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably fair. Although I tell you what, uh, dear listeners, remind us if we forget to say something about this one after the 2012 Fall Gaming Hoopla, because if it gets run there, I'm going to make Chris sit down and play play a game of it, and we'll just watch his little head explode. It'll be great. Yeah, well, luckily, being being one of the staff members of the Gaming Hoopla, I get to see the event list (laughs) after it's been submitted and before I plan my events. I'll just make sure my events are running while that one's running, and then I'll be fine. There you go, you weasel. That's all right. We'll be talking more about games that we'll never get Chris to play in just a minute here. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Game versus Game. This is the segment where we take two games that we feel have something sort of in common, compare and contrast, and let you know what we think about it in 30 seconds or less. Ha ha ha. This week, we're going to go with Battlestar Galactica and Shadows Over Camelot. Both of these are co-op games. Uh, Fantasy Flight released Battlestar Galactica in 2008, keying on the popularity of the rebooted TV series, of course, Corey Konichka being the designer. And Shadows Over Camelot was released a few years before that by Days of Wonder, 2005 to be precise. Bruno Cathala and Serge Lager, I believe is how you say his name, were the designers on that one. Both of these games are card-driven co-ops where players are, for all intents and purposes, playing cards in their hands to help accomplish certain tasks and, you know, save themselves from ultimate destruction and course Battlestar Galactica you're trying to fend off the Cylons in Shadows Over Camelot you're trying to fend off the enemy forces that are encroaching and even more importantly perhaps both games have a traitor aspect to them where there's probably going to be somebody around the table that is not on your side and is trying to make sure that things go horribly wrong so I tell you what Chris let's start out with Shadows Over Camelot because that one was you know chronologically first in the publishing and maybe BSG played off of that a little bit um, what would you, in Shadows Over Camelot, what is the feel that you think happens around the table in that one, if you get my drift? I just feel like in, in Shadows Over Camelot, I feel like there's more interaction when you're playing. Um, or I should say there is interaction when you're playing, when you're, you're, you're talking to the other people at the table, you know, coordinating who has what cards. You know, you can team up on a certain aspect of the board sure. um, to work together if you, if you have cards that work well together. There's always kind of this constant, uh, you know, communication going on. There's always a threat, you know, at at the at the table when you're playing Shadows Over Camelot. Um, that might not necessarily be the case with BSG. Well, you know, and I think BSG has sort of that same interaction in that whenever a skill check is required, everybody's throwing cards into it. But it's not obvious because you throw the cards in face down, so you don't ever really know who's doing what. Whereas in Shadows Over Camelot, if you go to a location and you play a card, well, everybody gets to see what card you just played. So I feel yeah. like I feel like there's less information somehow. I don't know. Yeah, it, well, and with BSG, too, there's less tension at points in the game when there's no Cylon fleet around. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, you know, you might spend a whole lap around around the game table, you know, figuring out, you know, who's going to twiddle their thumbs better right. as you as you wait for the Cylons to show up. Sure. Yeah, so, that, makes, that makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, and you ne- never really have that downtime in Shadows Over Camelot because no matter what's going on, there's always something bad that just happened. I mean, exactly. There's, there's never a point where there isn't something awful that's in the process of happening to the board. So. Right. One of the downsides of Shadows Over Camelot is when you're playing with the, the standard rules, there might not necessarily be a trader at the table. Right. Which I think is a little silly. I mean, we always kind of play with the variant that there's always going to be a trader. Uh, at the table, um, BSG by default, there's always at least one at the table, and depending on number of players and whatnot, usually uh, there, there there's going to be more than that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would say that there's going to be more than that because BSG with less than about four people is a snooze fest if ever there has been one. Yeah, I that's think, a good I, point. You just don't get enough interaction at all with the three player game. It just is bad. Um, but see, now, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on the Shadows Over Camelot thing, because I think that some of the tension in Shadows can come from the fact that you don't know if there is a traitor. You might mistrust somebody because they played poorly, you know, or did something that you didn't feel was appropriate to the game and therefore think they're a traitor when they're not. 
Whereas in BSG, you know somebody is. You know someone is tanking things. It's just a matter of ferreting out who that person is. I actually think that there's an extra level of tension in Shadows without the automatic trader. Yeah, that's, tr- that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. That's just me. But I um, I tried it with the quote-unquote hardcore rule, too, where there is definitely a trader. And really, if you want that experience, just play with a bigger group. I mean, all you need to do is play with a seven- or eight-player group, and you're going to have one anyway. So then there's no issue. Yeah, but I think the game is good with five players, and I think with five players, there's not necessarily going to be a traitor, That's if, I rem- if I remember how the game is set up. So. There's eight cards. There's eight cards that you deal out, and one of those eight is the traitor, and seven are loyal. And in the base game, okay. you're supposed to shuffle all eight cards and deal one out, no matter how many players are playing. So in a five-player game, there's a five and eight chance that there will be a traitor at any given point in the... You know what I mean? So more than 50% chance. In sure. Example. Okay. See, and when I play Shadows, I almost always play with as many people as I can pack around the table. As a matter of fact, I even have the print-your-own-expansion that came with the game, so that way that you can play with Mordred, so you can have an eighth player at the table and put right. more fun around there. So I'm I'm one of those people that tends to think that bigger is always better when it comes to number of players. If I game accommodate seven, I'll play it with seven if I can. Yeah, so. I, I agree. There's, you know, there's very few games that go to that player limit, and when you find uh, one that does it and does it well, I think you got to play with. Yeah, you got to play with the big group. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I will say this: as far as the look of the games go, and I mean, if we're going to compare and contrast, I think it's not fair if we don't compare and contrast the actual components too. Both games are okay looking. Um, straight out of the box, BSG, I think falls a little short of Shadows Over Camelot because Shadows has the sculpts and the really pretty artwork. All I mean, it's a Days of Wonder game. Days of Wonder, they never put out anything that isn't beautiful. I'm sorry, but yeah. they have yet to put out, even the games that they have that that I really intensely dislike, and there have been a couple of them, are still gorgeous to look at. They just The game itself may not be amazing. But Shadows is beautiful. Battlestar's got a very stark, sparse look to it, which I actually kind of dig. Because, yeah. if you, you know, if you watch the show or know anything about, you know, that sort of a motif, you know, it makes sense. It's a very clean design and I'm and I'm OK with it. But just as far as wow power, I think Shadows gets the nod on that one as far as just what it looks like at the table. Yeah, I agree with that. And and boy, oh boy, if you get the painted miniatures that you can buy with, for Shadows Over Camelot, which I am a proud owner of, I would just like to point out game gets even better because now you've got those pre-painted sculpts that are moving around and the game is just even better then. Yeah, the base game of Battlestar Galactica for the base stations, they're just cardboard cutouts, which is pretty lame. I know with, I believe, the Pegasus expansion, they added added sculpts for the base stations, which pretty sweet so that adds to it a little bit agreed but you know that's just one of those things where it makes me wonder god guys you got such a hot ip why wouldn't you just do that out of the gate and be done with it i just that seems like a shortcut they didn't need to take in the base well, especially if isn't that fantasy flight yeah yeah for for bsg to actually take a component that should be plastic and make it cardboard seems out of character for them yeah, I mean, so their games are just always loaded with plastic especially right? for fantasy yeah. flight yeah uh, if yeah. there have ever been two companies that are all about the bling it's probably fantasy flight and days of wonder so you know that yeah i totally agree with you so all right yeah, i wish i yeah i wish i enjoyed you know bsg more because i really enjoy the the universe you know i, I love battlestar galactica i just right. i don't know yeah i think that you know, and here's 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 one thing that I'm going to say before we get into our synopsises of which game we like better or worse or whatever, for whatever reason, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't think either game is actually any good. I'm just and, and this you can you can pound on me if you want to for this one. But I think that both actual game designs are kind of weak in Shadows Over Camelot. You're basically playing poker hands to different locations 
you know, with the exception of the Holy Grail, that's the only that's the only location where the actual what kind of card you play really matters at the end of the game. So you're effectively just slapping down numbers to try and make certain combinations so that way your combination is higher than the other one. Right. In BSG, you're putting down skill cards of five different colors, maybe, which theoretically correspond to different sorts of skills. But nobody, four minutes into the game, you have completely forgotten what red means and who cares. This skill right. check wants red, yellow, and green cards. Okay, do I have big red, yellow, and green cards? Woohoo! You know, the theme goes out the window and all you're looking at is colors and numbers and trying to make sure that none of the dials hit zero. I mean, you know, I don't think either game really has much mechanically going for it. I think this is sort of like what we were talking about with Cutthroat Caverns. These games both rely very, very heavily on the people sitting around the table making it fun. I oh, think, for sure. Oh, boy. If you get a bunch of fuddy-duddies sitting around playing either one of these games, prepare for six hours of brain damage because it will just suck and it will take forever and they will. Ugh. Yeah. And, you know, and I always see BSG especially getting played at cons. And it, to me, it's just like, I can't imagine playing a game like that with eight other people at the table that I yeah. don't know at all. It's like, it could be a, four hours of just horridness. Yeah. Yeah. I know playing long games at conventions always worries me a little bit anyway, because what happens if you get stuck with that guy whoever yeah. that guy is, no matter what kind of game it is, but especially in a game that's so socially dependent, like a co-op, you know? And I mean, there are some, there are some co-op games that can survive that a little bit better and don't punish you quite as badly. Pandemic leaps to mind. You can play pandemic with a bunch of strangers and be fine. You I know, think because, so. Yeah. Because the game does not stay. It's welcome. And mechanically, there's a lot, lot of really interesting things going on. I just don't think you have that in BSG at all, or Shadows for that matter. I think that if it's not the right group, the game is just going to drag. Yeah. All right. So I tell you what, we've hashed it out, Chris. What do you think? In 30 seconds or less, and yes, I'm going to time you because I am that guy. 30 seconds or less, which one do you pick? Ready? Go. All right. BSG, not amazing for me. Way too much downtime, way too much uninteresting decisions. If I'm not a Cylon, I'm not having fun. That's how I feel about that. Shadows over Camelot could care less about Avalon, could care less about Camelot, but I just think it's a better game. It's uh, There's more things to do on your turn. There's more working with people, less downtime. Shadows over Camelot, go! All right, very good. 27 seconds. I'm impressed. Oh, nice. man. You had a few seconds extra. All right, so you want to time me, or am I going to time myself? Am I on the honor system, Chris? Yes, you are. Yes, uh, you are. All right, my 30 seconds, and go. I guess I'd have to pick Shadows over Camelot as well. Um, I like Battlestar Galactica just fine, and if people really want to play it, I'll play it. You know, it's not going to kill me to play it. I just think it outstays its welcome hardcore. I think that the game is fun for a while. I, we didn't talk about this in the in the breakdown, but I don't like the idea that halfway through the game your allegiance can change. That's super irritating. You know, if you I want to be a good guy or not a good guy, one way or the other. Shadow scratches the itch better. Don't listen to him about the definite traitor. Shadows, exactly 30 seconds. Ha ha. Nice work. There you go. You're almost like a professional. <laughs> it's almost you, like you I hit know your what post. Woohoo! It doesn't hurt that I can stare at the clock and see how many seconds have elapsed either. So <laughs> All right, it's time to move on to Guilty Pleasures, and I'm going to take the helm on this one week, this week and open myself up to public mockery on the interwebs. My Guilty Pleasure game for this week, you're going to love this, The Game of Life Twists and Turns Edition. Now, before 
You guys, yeah. Before everybody starts throwing tomatoes at your iPods, I want you to think about this for a second. The Game of Life, of course, is the classic game with the big spinner in the middle and the clackety wheel, and you put the little boys and girls in your car, and about your only decisions is whether you want to go to college or not, and if you don't, you're a dumbass in the game, and then which way do I want to turn left or right at this fork in the road, and that's pretty much it. Other than that, it's spin the thing, move, see what happens to you. The Game of Life Twists and Turns edition doesn't change all of that. I'm not going to try and make it something that it isn't. It doesn't change all of it. You still have the stupid spinner thing, and you still move around the track on the board, and you still kind of see what happens to you. But there are a couple things that, that this game has that the other one doesn't. The first thing is that it's got an electronic doohickey in the center of the table that keeps track of everything for you. It keeps track of how big your family is. It keeps track of your job. It keeps track of how much money you have. It keeps track of how many points you've earned. So no more shuffling around paper and trying to figure out which insurance policy is where and all that other BS that they had in the other game. It just streamlines all the bookkeeping, makes it better. The other thing that this new version has is that rather than just having one big track that you are just stuck going down, there are four smaller tracks that represent the four aspects of life as they interpret it. School, work, family, and travel, for lack of a better term. Although that's that, that track is encompasses a whole bunch of different stuff and the idea behind the game is that you can focus on whichever one of those things you want each time you go around the track like you can take yourself and say okay i want to make sure that i go through school so now i'll go on the school track once you've finished school where do you want to go okay i want to go directly into the workplace and make some money great you can do that I'm not too worried about my job. I want to have a family. Okay, you can do that. You know, I've built up my wealth. Now I want to go on vacation. You can do that. So there's some actual choices, and each of those choices has an honest-to-God game consequence to it, which I think is kind of interesting. Straight out of the box, the game has some flaws, sure. Um, it's still roll and move at the end of the day. You know, you still spin the spinner and you move that many spaces and see what happens to you. But there are a couple tweaks you can do to fix that, which they obviously aren't in the game. These are house rules. So, you know, it gets a little better in those. Uh, the other problem with the game is that still at the end of the day, more often than not, you're going to be drawing a card off the top of a deck, reading the thing, and something will happen to you. And sometimes it'll be ridiculously good. Sometimes it'll be ridiculously bad, you know, and it's just, it is isn't. It is what it is. I don't know. There's nothing amazing in the box. What? Oh, see, I can see the look on Chris's face as he's about <laughs> to nuke me. Go for it. No, I I. I think it sounds kind of interesting. It sounds far more interesting than any of the other iterations of the game of life that I've played. Yeah. I think your house rules might make it a little bit more interesting, you know? Um, to sum up really fast, the house rules in this game, you're allowed to buy. You start out with a skateboard. You don't have a car and you can buy cars over the span of the game. And what I say is that whenever you if you own a car, you can adjust the spin for your movement by one or two, depending on how nice of a car you have. So it's just, you know, you spin and then you can look at the board and you know, tweak it up or down one so that way you can land someplace that's better for what you want to do, giving you a little more control. That's it. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's cool. You know, it takes some of the random randomness out of it. Uh, you know, probably still not entirely uh, strategic when you're playing, but probably more enjoyable than, than you would expect. So did your wife play a marathon session of this one time? Yes, yes. Um, a couple of my wife and a couple of her friends have at varying points in time played. Oh, and that's another thing. You can actually set the length of the game. You can program in how many turns you want to play, and the person that's accrued the most points at the end of that number turns wins. So the game is guaranteed to not outstay its welcome because you can flat out tell it how long you want the game to go. Well, the limit on the little computer thing is 99. That is the longest game. And my wife decided that, <laughs> by God, she wanted to play a 99-turn game of this. 
And she did. They played a two-player game, and I believe they said it took a little over four hours. And I don't know if I would play a four-hour game of anything life, so that's not so much for me. But Wow. Yeah. Yeah, at that point, it's called the game of wasting your life. Yeah, basically, basically. But but no, it's not, it's not bad. If you want to buy a game that will not, you know, that isn't quite even a gateway game by gamer standards. You know, you're, you're a little worried that maybe there's even settlers or ticket to ride or that sort of thing is going to be a little out of their loop but you want something that is not going to cause your brain to turn into oatmeal twists and turns edition game of life not terrible cool and if you're the guy reading the rules i'm telling you right now just lie to the people that you're teaching the game to and introduce that whole if you own a car you can adjust the die up or the spin up one or down up one or down one just throw that in there Make everybody think it's a straight up rule. Don't even let them look at the rule book. Just ignore that. You know what I mean? And just teach them that one right away and they'll get into the game more too. Right. Nice. There you go. All right, Chris, that brings us to the end of another one of these suckers, huh? I'm so sad. It's already over. I know. It feels like it went by so fast and it totally didn't, by the way. It's about the same length as all the other ones. So there you go. Next week, we are going to, in our game versus game, we're going to hit up the Resistance versus Werewolf. Talk about games that rely entirely on the people sitting around the table. That's going yeah. to be a fun one. And then we're going to have our first one-and-done segment, Chris. And we're leaving this up to our local curmudgeon, Chris Dunbar. Chris, what's our one-and-done going to be next week? Well, my one-and-done is going to be Arkham Horror. I don't know if you agree. I don't think you do. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of people that do. But yeah, one and done on Arkham Horror. That's all I needed. Ladies and gentlemen, begin writing your hate mail now and submit it in seven days. We will catch you guys on the flip side. I'm Bill Corey. I'm Chris Dunbar. You guys have a great time and keep gaming. You've been listening to Cube Pushers, a proud member of the Ghost Hat Podcast Network. All music for this episode is graciously provided by royaltyfreemusic.com. For more great entertainment, visit ghosthat.net or keep up with us two fools personally at cubepushers.com. Thanks for listening, and keep gaming. Keep gaming.